0: Amen. How good it is to know that because Jesus is alive, he can be the anchor for our souls. Through ups and downs, through every storm, we know we have a Savior who is alive and can help us as no other can. As we celebrate... Veterans Day today, I want to acknowledge that we don't have Rise and Shine on holiday Sundays because we want to give our uh, teachers a break. And uh, so we're going to have our kids with us. If you didn't know, in the basket, we have these kids' bags. There's some coloring books and crayons and note-taking stuff. So if you didn't grab one of these and you would like one, you can feel free to get up and move around and go grab one and check it out. Uh, But these are here for you kids in case uh, my uh, sermon gets a little long or a little boring. Uh, My sermons are never long or boring though, right? Also, I just want to acknowledge uh, Norm Ramsey shared this with, with us this morning. Uh, today is 100 years of Veterans Day, so we're acknowledging the century mark. So that, that's really cool as well. And I just want to take a minute and ask, if you are a, a vet and you're with us this morning, would you take a moment and just please stand so we can acknowledge your presence with us this morning? Thank you. I'll well, keep standing. Don't sit down. Don't sit down. No, don't sit down, stay standing, stay standing. Okay, here, here, here we're going to do one more thing. If you have a family member, uh, a spouse, uh, uh, an uncle, an aunt, a brother, a sister, or even a grandparent who served in the military as a vet, would you also please join them and stand now? Yeah, look at that, almost the whole room. Okay, now you can sit down, thank you. We, we do honor those who have uh, sacrificed in terms of their service and their sense of duty and responsibility. And as we are in week two of our new series uh, that we're uh, titling Come Grow With Us, we're talking about uh, the experience of community in the early church. And we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and we're talking about how the pattern that we see emerging in the early church uh, wasn't some random, uh, you know, event that just kind of happened that was true for them but has no bearing on our lives today. In fact, as we extend the invitation to the community around us, that we want to invite them to come and grow with us, and that's what's printed on your bulletin. I don't know if you saw the new banners that are on the building as you drove in, but we feel like it's time for us to go public with this invitation that God wants us to invite more and more people to experience a life-transforming walk with Jesus. We, we want to be a church that, that reaches out, that connects with people in our community, and that sees more and more people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their savior, yet included in this invitation, if you were with us last week, we talked about how uh, there's the assumption that the invitation for, for people to come and grow is that, is that we are growing ourselves, right? The invitation is to come grow with us as we grow in Christ and and what we've been learning is that it's not an either or proposition it's a it's a both and we cannot grow as christians we cannot grow as a faith community unless and until we are investing in the growth and the development of the people who are already Here, right, And yet we also know that the Bible teaches us is that if we are truly growing in our faith and we're maturing in our spiritual walk with Jesus, that the evidence of the outcome of that growth and maturity is that the gospel is preached and more and more people come to know Jesus and evangelism is happening. And so one of the questions that we're asking in this series and as we look to the season ahead for us as a church is how do we begin to develop a pattern and a lifestyle in our church that no longer sees these as separate ministries of the church, but as two sides of the same coin. Or another way to say it is, how do we connect and grow and serve together? Because that's part of our discipleship pathway that we identified, right? In, in living a real life together, we want to connect and grow and serve. How do we do those things together in a way that it becomes an invitation for others to join us? on this journey with Jesus. And as I said, the premise of this series is that the shared lifestyle of the early church wasn't random or accidental, but it was the result of the presence and the power of the Spirit of Christ who led those early Christians to live a new lifestyle in shared community together that exists today in Scripture as an example for us to follow as well. And so in week two of our study in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, we're seeking to learn a pattern and a lifestyle that emerges when we too give ourselves to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, if you want to turn in your Bible to join us in Acts chapter 2, uh, we'll also have the words on the screen where we can follow along. And if you were with us last week, we talked about how in these six verses, you could almost look at them as three sets Of verses, three pairs where you have what the disciples did and then a a result that happened. So in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then the result was that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And the result was that they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And the result was that they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then the culmination of the whole chapter is that, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so we see that that this is the Holy Spirit's church growth strategy at work, right? Right? Last week, we suggested that if we seek to connect and grow and serve together, this pattern that we see in Acts 2 gives us practical examples of how we too can can prioritize our lives on the things that are most important to Christ in his kingdom. And we looked at the four things that these early Christians devoted themselves to, and we introduced the acronym GROW that comes from our, our denomination in their discipleship department, where the, the acronym kind of tracks along with those four things that the disciples devoted themselves to. G stands for God's Word, and that's really what the apostles' teaching has become for us, right? They captured it and, and wrote it down in the New Testament, and now we have the apostles' teaching as God's Word. And relationships is, is the fellowship of believers. It's it's committed relationships to one another. We talk about how outward action is represented in this idea of communion, right? The breaking of bread is celebrating Christ's broken body and his poured out blood for us to to bring us back to, to, to God. But it also represents that we too are reminded that we're called to be broken bread for others, to be broken bread for the world. And ultimately that leads us to a life of worship and we talked about how prayer is more than just saying words to God but it's an ongoing engagement and dialogue with God as we also learn how to devote ourselves to these core elements of Christian community, we believe that we will also see the same kinds of results that the early church experienced. What was the result? Verse 43, right? Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And the way we translated it last week is simply, God showed up. Right? They devoted themselves to these core things led by the Holy Spirit, and God showed up. People found healing and wholeness in Christ. Miracles happened. Hearts were transformed. Enemies became friends. Strangers became family, and the church grew. Last week, we also talked about the idea of challenging ourselves to a, a, a real-life-together commitment, and, and, and we're going to talk about more about that more at the end. I'd like to save that and, and wrap up our time together with that again today. But, but in the season ahead, we're gonna be asking, what are the things that we can be committing ourselves to so that we're uniting as a faith community and we're participating in Christ's mission of love to the world? But I wanna focus in on verses 44 and 45 for us, that second pair of verses where it said all the believers were together and had everything in common. See, when, when it says all the believers were together, I, I want to be sure that we're not just thinking with this mental picture that they're, they're all crammed into one room, right? I don't think that's what it's saying. Now, there were times when they, we all got together for worship, or they were all in the temple, or they were in the upper... But I, I think when it says all the believers were together, the Bible is saying they had a sense of connection and unity in their shared life together, There's an idea that this deeper uh, weaving of relationship through the presence of the Spirit led them to devote themselves to one another in a new, in a more profound way. Out of their devotion for Christ, they learned to have each other's backs. We might say it that way today, right? They knew that they had each other's backs. And see, the level of commitment to one another in their shared life led to a deep sense of responsibility and duty for caring for one another in new ways. And they began to see everything they had, not as their own possessions, not as mine, but but really more as, as God's, that everything belonged to God. And we were simply the stewards and the managers of all the gifts and the blessings God has given us. And so therefore, they began to experience this freedom to use all that they had and all that they were in this mission to share life and to develop people and to love one another well. Thus, they began to view everything as being in common. This phrase, everything in common, has the same meaning as the word that we now use as community. The root word for in common is the same word that's used in English for the word community. What we see is that being led by the Spirit of Christ to be united together in community created a whole new way of thinking about life in this world. The death and resurrection of Jesus created a radical new understanding, not only of people's connection to one another in love, but of people's sense of responsibility for one another's growth and development as a part of the community of God's family. As we see in Acts 2, this included people's time, their talents, and their treasure. What's important for us to see here, I think, is that it was their deep sense of unity that led them to live out their faith in community. See, the the unity in Christ came first and that led to their commitment to live out their faith in community. It was their profound experience of being united to Christ as a new spiritual family that led them to live out their faith together, empowered by the spirit that had been given in ways that powerfully reshaped their understanding of relationships and community. And that gives us a picture that we can learn from today. I'd like to suggest for us, though, as we look at this and we read these verses, there's, there's probably a little dissonance for you as I, as I think there is for me, because but as part of the challenge for, for us in our modern Western culture is that people have become so individualistic that a biblical picture of community seems completely odd and strange, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but it almost, to me, sounds like communism, Right? I mean, everybody sells everything, and everything's... Isn't that communism? Well, I'd suggest that's not what's going on here. We're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning. But in our culture, we live such private lives where there's very little impact and and interference from others. We're almost conditioned to to keep people at arm's length and to, to hide what's really going on and to somehow figure out how to manage that Ourselves, Church, in many people's experience, I, I suspect, is not a, a sense of a movement of the Holy Spirit of Christ that they've been caught up into and woven into as a community. In fact, the idea of having things in common sounds, sounds too odd to us. I mean, we're about private ownership, and it's my stuff. And, and, and part of success in life means getting more and more stuff for myself, Right? Uh, This idea of selling stuff to give it away, I mean, that's not the American way. And so we don't even take time, I would suggest, to think about how the Bible might have a real challenge to our current lifestyle as the church today. The idea of commitment to community is completely foreign in a culture that's characterized by increasingly transient relationships. I mean, statistics are showing us now that that the expectation for workers today is they're going to have at least three, if not five different jobs in the course of their career, right? And gone are the days when you have a 20 or 30-year career at the same place and and you retire with a pension and you spend your whole life devoted and dedicated to one company or one corporation or, or one area of vocation. And we know that people move from home to home and from one city to another fairly regularly. And even one of the most unifying factors of a community, right, our football team. Even that's not guaranteed anymore, right? They might pick up and move tomorrow. We're seeing it happen all over the country. My parents live in San Diego, and they're like, what are the Chargers thinking? Right? But, but, but their motive is profit, right? They're not about the community. They're about the bottom line of making a profit. They're a business. And yet we're so conditioned to think in, in business-like terms and consumeristic terms that I think too often we can approach church with the same kind of profit mindset. Like, what's in it for me? Right? What, do I, what do I come to get out of church? And if I'm not getting out of church, what I think I should be getting out of, maybe I can go to the church down the street and get something out of the church there. We don't come with a sense of what duty and responsibility do I have to give to this community in order to participate in this movement of the Spirit that wants to weave us together as spiritual family. I'd suggest that we can view this as an opportunity for the church in America today because life without community creates a deep void in people's lives which the church can fulfill if we learn again to truly practice Christian community. You know, I've told this story before, but when I uh, do premarital counseling with some couples who come and they want to get married and we, we talk through a lot of different aspects of life and relationship, I always try and lead them to, to the question, and I usually save it for a little later, but I, but I bring up the question, so what do you think about the role of church in your marriage? What do you think about the role of church in your family? And almost always people kind of go, uh ah because they've not been conditioned to think about church as something intimately important for the success of their marriage. They haven't been conditioned or experienced church as something intimately important for the success of their parenting and and the raising of their children because too often we experience church more like a gym membership, right? Where we pay our dues and we come up and participate in the the services that we want, but then we go about our lives and, and we don't ever get connected and understand the value of the network of relationships that are supposed to be a safety net in our lives. And I try and tell these young couples, you, you don't understand that, that church is not supposed to be some religious club. It's supposed to be like an extended family network so that when you find yourself going through hard times, because it's not if they're gonna come, right? It's when they're gonna come. The, the church should be that relational network that helps support you and encourage you and allow you to navigate those difficult waters of life and relationship. But unfortunately, it's too often that we don't develop those safety net relationships in our lives, and then we find ourselves in crisis, and then we go, what am I going to do? And we often turn to things that are less than healthy in our lives because we don't have that kind of community around us that God had created us and shaped us and designed us for to be in relationship. So I would suggest for us that the time is right for us as Christians to be able to present to the world a new form of community, a new way of committing to one another and being responsible for one another, inviting people into a relational network that has a lot more than just attending church on Sunday morning. You see, as we look at this passage, the extent of their changed hearts and their changed attitudes was reflected in their open-handed generosity With one another. And it wasn't just their money, but it was their time, their talents, and their treasure. And as a result of this new paradigm, this new sense of duty and responsibility to be a part of a spiritual family, verse 45 says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone had need. See, that wasn't a spiritual requirement in order to get into the church. It was a result of, of their commitment to one another. They, they, they wanted to be generous and they wanted to support one another. And so those who had excess wealth and resources were willing to, to sell that in order to help make the church function. Now, I think that's an important piece to to note, though. It wasn't a religious requirement. It was the byproduct of their experience in community. See, we don't see a a, a case of enforced sharing in the New Testament here. This isn't communism. Nor was it a once-for-all disposal of all private property in the church. I think sometimes we might get that impression because we remember the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, right? And he says, the one thing that you have to do is sell everything that you have and, and then come and follow me. And, and so we, we get this picture that somehow to be a good Christian in the early church was to sell everything and, and go on this experience of life without any possessions. But that's not really what we see in the New Testament. The, the imperfect tense of the verbs here suggests that the property was only sold periodically on an as-needed basis. It was a part of the, the ebb and flow of the life of this early community. Now, quickly, I don't want to spend too much time uh, in another passage, but Acts four thirty-two to 35 kind of confirms this. Luke continues to talk about how they experienced this in the early life of the church, and I think it's instructive for us to see this part. In verse 32, he says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. I love that phrase. And you know, they were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. Right? They didn't all give up private property. In fact, we know that the early church grew by meeting in people's homes. That was part of the hospitality of the early church. So, so home ownership and property ownership continued in the early church, but they were so smitten with Christ's love and this new experience of community that when anybody had need, those who had excess said, well, I've got more than I need. I'll sell something and share it with you. Again, Luke identifies that at the heart of the practice of sharing material possessions, was first and foremost a deep sense of unity and belonging in community. Being one in heart and mind was more than a simple affiliation with a church down the street. It was a deep sense of spiritual unity shared, and a shared sense of passion for the mission of Christ's church. And we see that because right in the middle of this passage that we just read, uh, we see the witness of the apostles as being part and parcel of the experience of Christian community, right? They're living in community, and the testimony and the stories of the apostles are continuing to see new people come to faith in Jesus. And so the community grows as they live out this shared experience of life together in Christ it wasn't an either or it was a a both and it was two sides of the same coin evangelism and Christian community are, are part and parcel of what the Christian life is all about Christian community is by its design and its nature good news and that's what evangelism is it's just sharing the good news of Jesus Their unity and how they shared their lives was a visible testimony to the presence of the kingdom of God in their midst. They didn't consider their possessions their own, but because they saw everything as ultimately belonging to God, they willingly shared everything they had as there was need. And as a result, it says there was no needy person among them. Now it wasn't easy for them, right? I mean, this wasn't a perfectionist utopian society. I think we can kind of retroactively look back and somehow assume that this this they did this perfectly. But you look further on in the story, and you can see in Acts chapter 5, and we don't have time to go there today, but there's a story of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that that couple, right? So, so they went and sold property that they had and brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. So that apparently their motivation was to look good in front of everybody, because what Happened is secretly they kept back some of the profit for themselves, and that didn't please God very much, right? But but the principle comes when Peter comes and addresses them, and in in verse um, four of chapter five, he says, "Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal?" So, so why, why did you have to come and make this lie up in order to somehow look good in front of other people? Because there was no requirement or no expectation that you had to do this. It was your money, and, and that's between you and God. And then in chapter 6, we, we hear about the Hellenistic widows who are being overlooked in the regular distribution of the food, right? And they said, hey, there's some inequities here. We're not doing this very well. We need to change how we're doing life and practicing this. So it was messy, and they were just real people making difficult decisions in a messy world. And, and aren't we really the same today? Aren't we just trying to be real people in a, in a diff, making difficult choices in a broken, in a messy world? See, there's no quick fix, easy answers to how to live this out in our day and in our age. But I think the invitation from from the story of Acts is is that we have to be intentional about trying to ask those hard questions and say, how do we begin to creatively live into this in some new ways? And in order to do that, we, we need to do that together. We're simply real people who have to make difficult choices in a broken and a messy world. But our lives have been transformed by the living Christ? And, and is there an invitation for us in the season ahead to have a whole new experience of what Christian community is really intended to be? Now, last week I mentioned that money is the third rail of preaching. If you don't know what the third rail means if if you have an electric train uh, there's two tracks that the train rides on and then there's a third rail on the outside and that's the electrified rail right that's what powers the train and that's the rail you never want to touch because if you touch it you die (laughs) so preachers don't talk about money all that often and yet as we read this passage here, I don't think we can neglect to talk about the fact that Jesus taught a lot about money, right? Jesus taught that, that money or, or mammon is always a key obstacle in our spiritual growth, in our relationship with God. He said that you cannot serve both God and money. In Matthew six twenty four, he said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And see, part of living in Christian community, in the way that the Holy Spirit prompted these early Christians to do, challenges us to also now in our days see everything that we own and everything that we possess as not belonging to ourselves, but as belonging to God. And that we are simply the stewards and the managers of the gifts that he has given us. And as such, we're we're challenged again by this passage to to see, can we hold our possessions loosely? It doesn't mean that we have to sell everything. It doesn't mean that we have to give up our ownership. but, But we have to understand that our ownership comes with the responsibility to manage those resources in conjunction with our relationship with God through his Holy Spirit. As a response to God's generosity and our participation in his kingdom, I believe the Bible challenges us and is challenging us through Acts chapter 2 to question how do we come together as a faith community and make sure that we too are participating with one another fully. The Bible has more than 2,350 verses on money, wealth, and possessions. You think it's an important issue for God? I think it is. And why? Because the Bible tells us that money is the number one contributor for our affections against God. Money, more than anything else, is is, is a temptation to put our trust in our own strength, in our own goodness, in our own security, rather than trusting in God for our need. And, And in the wealthiest nation in the world, this is one of our biggest challenges that we face. Interestingly, statistics demonstrate that as prosperity increases, giving decreases, right? Because the more that we have, the more fearful we are about losing what we have, and so we begin to cling to it more tightly. Another interesting statistic is that the the more prosperous a culture, the more depressed people get. Because, see, when we put our trust in our wealth, in our financial security, we, we're not putting our trust in the only thing that can really make us happy and give us freedom and joy, and that's Jesus Christ in our lives. And so our very financial security begins to compete with God's effect, God for the affection of our hearts. I heard one pastor say this that really stuck with me. As Christians, we need to give more than the church needs our money. As Christians, we need to give more than the church needs our money because it's a spiritual issue for each one of us. As we intentionally give to the church, and maybe it's not giving to our church, maybe it's giving to some wonderful Christian cause around the country. It's giving away our resources to be a blessing to help others. It trains us to hold our possessions loosely and to allow God to be the Lord of our lives and to respond to his prompting in our lives. As Christians, it's more important that we learn to give than it is that the church needs our money. Now, I felt like it would be important to also just share how we approach giving here at Faith Covenant Church. If you're newer to the church, this might be important for you to understand, or, or maybe you've been here a while and you, you didn't understand this. But, but here, I would say it this way, okay? At Faith Covenant Church, giving to our church is not required, but it's expected. Giving to our church is not required, but it's, it's expected. If you're a part of this community, if this is your church and you regularly attend here or you're a covenant partner, we expect that you're going to support the church financially. Now, the other side of that, though, is as, as your pastor and anyone on staff, we don't look at what people give. We don't know how much you give. We don't want to know how much you give. All we want to know is whether you give or you don't give, right? Because how much you give, the Bible clearly says, is between you and God. That, that's something that you need to negotiate in the relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit as your Lord and Savior. Because you're not here to follow Faith Covenant Church. You're not here to follow Kurt Nothelfer. You're here to follow Christ. And, and if you have that same view that, that all of your possessions really belong to God, then, then you need to work, out that, work that out with him. And so we have a few people who need to to know what the numbers are because we have to track it and manage it, but we keep that number very small and we keep that information very confidential. So we don't want to know how much you give. We just want to know, are you giving? Are you participating? Do you have a sense of duty and responsibility to this as your faith community if this is your faith community? If you're visiting with us, uh, again, th- this is something that, that we, we grow into as a faith community. At some point, we might hope that you would feel like this is your church and that, and that you would want to support it in, in that way. But really, as, as a faith community, are we all in with God and with one another? See, the point is not that it's a religious duty that you have to do in order to fulfill God's to earn God's favor. It's a lifestyle of generosity that is a mark of the spiritual maturity of Christians when they grow in faith. And the other challenge is we're asked to give to so many causes today, right? I don't, I mean, I don't think I've made a purchase at a store now where they don't say, hey, would you like to give to such and such? And would you like to give to such and such? And so we, we can experience giving fatigue, right? And so we're sensitive to that. We don't, we don't want to do this heavy push that you have to give more and more and more but we want to say you, you have to be faithfully participating in the community. See, what we see is that sharing financially makes a lot more sense when we come to understand that it's truly among family, right? I mean, when, when you make a contribution to some other person, it it's a lot, makes a lot more sense if it's family, right? Uh, Tammy and I, when we were first getting started and, and we moved to Phoenix and we were ready to buy our first house, we didn't have enough money for a down payment. So my parents came along and they said, hey, you know, we would like to help out with some money to help you get a down payment for your house. And we were like, what? No way. That's too much money. You can't. And they're like, no, you're family. You're our kids. What? You know, we'd rather spend it on you than, than anything else. Please take it as a gift. And it was a pleasing gift for them, and it made sense because we were family, right? And, and that's the perspective that we see. These believers were united in heart and mind. They saw each other as spiritual families. So, of course, if a need came up and people had excess, of course they would want to help. And it was a blessing to give as much as it was to receive. And it became a part of the heart and the character of the kind of community that they lived in. See, through the presence and the power of the Spirit of Christ in their midst, they devoted themselves to one another, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer in such a way that they became family together. Deep unity leads to increased generosity, not just financially, but in participation with the whole mission of God when we are all in with God and we are all in with one another, God blesses his people with all the gifts that they need in order to accomplish that which he's called them to do. And when we use those gifts in God's service, we find our greatest joy and completeness in life because we're fulfilling the purpose for why God created us. Now, we're short on time, so I'd just like to wrap up with this uh, real life together commitment to see how as we receive these gifts from the Holy Spirit, and and are used to strengthen and edify the church, which is the body of Christ in the world and the work of the ministry of God, we need to get really good at saying, how do we live this out in in simple, practical terms? And so our real-life commitment together identifies four areas where, as we move forward as a church, we want to invite you. If you are a regular attender here, if this is your church, or if you're a covenant partner especially, we want to challenge one another to be able to commit ourselves to these things together. And they kind of, again, track with Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. First, attend Sunday morning worship. I mean, that's kind of the weekly gathering of, of the ecclesia, right? The gathering of God's people. But more than that, help make Sunday morning happen. I mean, Sunday morning is our front door experience for any new guests that we have. And if you're a part of the family, shouldn't we all have a responsibility to, to, to get our house ready and to open the doors and to roll out the red carpet for our guests? We shared this last week. We did a quick assessment. It takes 50 to 60 people to pull off one Sunday. 50 to 60 people to pull off one Sunday morning. Now, you multiply that by 52 weeks a year, and we could use some help. Right? There's a lot of things that go on around here that we don't see. We're working with kids and making coffee and unlocking the doors and greeting people and counting money. and I mean, there's just all kinds of things that go on that, that require more and more people. So not just attend, but, but join the family and help make Sunday morning happen. Number two, be in a small group. We know that we're not a, a large church, but in a church our size, there you're not gonna be able to go deeper unless you get connected with a number of people who really know who you are and that you get to know. That social safety net. Network that we need in our lives can only happen in smaller groups. And so, if you're not in a group of people who you're able to go deeper with, and that could be a group of, you know, eight to 15, or it could be a group of just two or three people. It's not the size that matters, it's the intentionality that matters and how you spend your time together. Be in a small group for discipleship. Number three, serve on at least one serving team. Again, like money, we don't want you to serve just to grow the ministries of our church organization. We want you to be serving in some ways so that you're using the gifts that God has given you and you're exploring his call on your life because we know from experience and from scripture that in serving, we see God using us to be a blessing to others and we learn how he wants to grow and develop our character and to expand our gifts and using us in ministry. So serving is in some ways, a part of our growth in maturity and development. If you're not serving on at least one serving team, now get this, if you serve on a Sunday morning serving team, you get a twofer, right? And finally, supporting the church financially. Again, the Bible clearly teaches that how we handle our money has a huge impact on our own spiritual growth and maturity. And we also know that we can accomplish so much more when we bring all of our time, talent, and treasure together, and we come together as a faith community to pursue God's priorities and mission in the world. It's my hope and my prayer that that these insights from God's word in Acts chapter two will not only challenge us to see our calling as a church more clearly, but that it will motivate us to devote ourselves to the things that are priorities in God's kingdom so that we can become good news in the world around us. Because if we grow, the church grows. And if the church grows, the kingdom of God grows. And if the kingdom of God grows, then God is glorified and we participate in fulfilling the greatest honor and calling that we could have as God's creatures is to bring glory and honor to our Father in heaven, amen? Let's pray. God, we know that life in this world is messy and difficult. And and we know, sometimes intuitively and sometimes directly, that, that the relationship networks and the way we do life in America isn't working all that well. We know that people are lost and hurting and isolated and alone. And sometimes we, even as Christians, feel that way as well. God, would you help us to be able to hear your spirit speaking to us through the words of Acts chapter 2 this morning to be inspired to once again renew our efforts to devote ourselves to Christian community to be the church in this place in ways that are both life giving to us and then put us on a path to invite others to experiencing that life giving community called the body of Christ in the world And we will praise you for the ways you bless us and heal us and make us light in the darkness. We ask this in Jesus' name.